0: Morning everybody. We're going to go ahead <coughs> and jump right into this. Uh Alan and Debbie came back from Uganda and I had a wonderful video that they sent me where this I know some of you guys you bought bikes for these folks. I'm gonna show it next week because I forgot to put it up. <laughs> there was a guy that got one of those bikes, and I'm talking. You talk about joy, son. I, mean, I, I just wait till next week. I'm going to show it to you. It's an exciting time, but uh, to thank those guys, man, we're so appreciative of those bikes because now they find they get to have some transportation where they go out and preach the gospel. So it's amazing. But I'm going to show that to you next week. But we're glad for that, and thank you guys for. I know Alan's appreciative of those that supported that as he went. Yeah, you can give a hand clap of that. So Matthew uh, chapter 24. Verse three fourteen. I, I want to preach a message again. I'm going to continue in the end times. You remember last week we talked about Israel and prophecies concerning Israel that pointed us to where we are at on a prophetic timeline. We talked about how Israel uh, ceased to be a nation uh, from 70 A.D. after the Roman Empire destroyed them and that was prophesied by Jesus but then they did not become a nation once again until 1948. Jerusalem was restored in 1967 and then you continue to see the regathering of of Israel, the Jewish people, the restoration of the language, etc. And a lot of people will point to the fact that we see those biblical prophecies uh, that were prophesied some 16... Well, it would have been 20... 2600 years ago that are coming to pass now, which is pretty amazing. There's no uh, other book that is written that is as accurate as scriptural prophecy on what's happening in our world today. And so we want to look at these things because Jesus said when you see all of these things beginning to happen, lift up your head for your redemption draws near. But here's something that I want to unpack this morning. I'm going to call this sermon the man of lawlessness and we'll get into that and uh, it should be an exciting sermon. Um, but, But in Matthew 24... Uh, In 1 John, John, Peter, Paul, and Jesus refer to the end times and the coming of the Lord quite a bit. We talked about how the single most important prophecy in Scripture is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that happened prior to that. But what's interesting is what's going on when it comes to the last days What they point to more than what's going on in Russia and what world leaders are doing and who the Antichrist is, as important as those things may be, and what's going on in Israel, as important as those things may be. What they say to to look for more than anything is not what's going on around you out in the world, but more so what's going on inside of you within the church and within your very own heart. And so, this is something that we have to understand as we move toward the the, the last days. We are in the last days. But in Matthew 24, it speaks specifically, and they all said that one of the things you're going to have to be looking out for is deception, false teachers and prophets, and a great falling away. Everybody said, Man, this sounds good this morning. This is going to be encouraging. Hallelujah. Matthew 24, verse 3 through 14, it says, As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, Lord, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age and Jesus answered them see that no one leads you astray there's this idea that they believe that perhaps somebody could actually lead you astray for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ or I am Christian you could read it and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet And lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, as we dive into these difficult subjects, Lord, we just pray that Holy Spirit, you would come and you would illuminate your word. And you would allow us to receive your truth in this hour. Because God, we need discernment. And Lord God, we need to understand that we are your people called for such a time as this. And so I believe that your truth, God, is what sets us free. And I pray that even this morning our eyes will be opened to a reality, Lord, so that we would not be afraid, but we'd, we'd be strengthened and resolve in you and that we would know the truth, be set free by it, God, and be able to keep ourselves unspotted from this world and live, live for you and endure to the very end. When you come for us, Jesus, that's what we pray. And amen. 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 And so, again, what's going on in our world today, it's very interesting because as soon as something happens with the end times... The the, the initial result that people get and usually respond even within the church is honestly one of fear and I think probably one of the reasons that we respond with a lot of fear is because we've only heard certain things about the end times that are supposed to happen and we're very unclear as to what will actually happen and then we dive into the book of Revelation to try to make sense of things and all we do is say well man it looks pretty awful it looks like things are going to get bad I don't know about this book of Revelation don't understand it and fear comes into our hearts but see God is constantly constantly calling His church to be set apart from this world, and He is offering us a power to stand as a bright light in the midst of the greatest darkness. This is an hour in which we are called to know that we are the ones that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, with an enablement to preach the gospel like never before, to see a great harvest of souls, and to be a demonstration of His power and a witness of His glory in this hour. God is still doing His work, y'all, and He still plans to do it through His church even when the world is going in a different direction. So fear should not be the primary uh, mode of living for the believer. We should live in faith We should live in boldness and we should know that we have the power of the Holy Spirit and God backing us up that even if it were like the three Hebrew children and we were to be thrown into the fiery furnace they would look into that fiery furnace and proclaim there's a fourth man in the fire there with them. See this is the hour that we are living in. We are living in a time of tribulation so to speak where the fires are going to be turned up seven times hotter but in the midst of those fires we're going to see Jesus with us like never before. Oftentimes what Christians throughout history have discovered is that it's in the greater measure of tribulation and darkness that they fear the nearness of Christ and the power of Christ more directly revealed. And so that's what the hour that we're living in, and I believe that with all of my heart. But see, when we look to the end time stuff, you know, you can get on YouTube and, and you can get into what dispensational theories and what's going to happen with the mark of the beast. And people have a lot of different superstitions, don't they? And as I tell, I've told you before, now, a lot of people are very superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. I'm just a little stitious like I'm very when I read scripture I want to know the truth but I got to be honest with you when we look at certain things in the end time I cannot say beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are certain things that we know well there, there, there's things that we can say vaguely but we can't say specifically this is exactly how it will happen this is exactly the timing on it this is exactly when it, when it will unfold all the people throughout history have been aware that the coming of the Lord was at hand even when they wrote the New Testament Paul the Apostle Paul they believed believe that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ was imminent. But there were still some things that had not yet been revealed. And what Scripture says is the delay of the Lord's coming, the reason he has not returned yet, is because he wants more people to be saved and this gospel to be preached into all the nations. Then the end will come. The reason he's delaying is because of his mercy. It's not because he wants more bad things to happen. It's because he wants more people to be saved. And so, here's the thing. They write, and what Jesus says is actually a background for what the Apostle Paul teaches. And I'm going to hang out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 pretty much for the rest of this message. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4, Paul writes this church in Thessalonica, and he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. How many of you get quickly shaken? Some weird prophet says something, get quickly shaken. Amen either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion uh, the Greek word here is apostasia it's the falling away in other translations unless the rebellion or the falling away comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God now the Thessalonians were actually one of the most persecuted churches that were written to in scripture so here's the thing when your life is terrible you want the Lord to come back more quickly amen when your life's going pretty good you're like hold on Lord I got some things to do I've got some I want I want to see how well I can develop my career I'd like to see my children grow up and this and that and, and you know to some people I would say just like I said last week guess what you're going to get to see your children for an eternity, my friend. You're going to get to see them grow and flourish and we're going to see a kingdom without end. Your children will reach their maximum potential and they will be sinless. It'll be a great time, I promise you. It's going to beat whatever happens down here all two pieces. And I know that this life seems, some, seems like something, and thank God for it. it we're, we're to enjoy it. We're to do business until he comes. We're to take care of our children and raise them. And hopefully, you know, God would allow us to live a long, full, and a rich life. But when you're living like the Thessalonians were, you were saying, Lord, come quickly. And when they got the promise that the Lord was going to come back, they were like, when? Is it like tomorrow? And everybody started quitting their jobs. Y'all, y'all ever been that way? Like, I remember when I first got saved, I was about 20, 21 years old, and I heard some end-time prophecy type stuff, and people started talking about the Antichrist and the Lord coming back. And I said, well, you know what? There ain't no way I'm making it to 25. Why even, why even finish school, Dad? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> anybody, anybody feel me on that? that? That's exactly what they were doing. And he said, look, don't be quickly shaken. Don't live like this. Don't get so consumed with the end times that you forget how to live life here. He says, don't get so consumed with the fact that the Lord is coming back. You need to plan like he's not coming back for a thousand years. But you need, And you need to work. He said, y'all need to get a job. He said, warn the people that ain't got jobs. I don't care if the Lord's coming back tomorrow. You need to work. Amen. That's good preaching already this morning. He said, get jobs. And work and be busy and be about God's business. And, and stay focused because you're getting, because you're under persecution, you want Him to come back so badly that you're missing what you need to be focused on. And that's the work of Christ in our world. But there's two specific things that, point, that Paul points to. He says, you want to know, he says, don't, don't think that the day of the Lord is coming because there's two things that must happen before the Lord returns. Two things that must happen. Number one, he says there's a great apostasy or a great falling away or a great rebellion. And then number two, he says the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now this word apostasy, I don't know if you've ever heard it before. That's what the word rebellion is or the falling away. But it literally means... It literally means it's this, it's this Greek word that means essentially that you once had something and now you have fallen away from it. Now most scholars will say he's talking about a time in the future when the, the visible church will seem to become a, a, a place where people are moving away from the foundational doctrines and teachings of Scripture and of Jesus Christ. And even though they name Christ and call themselves Christians, in belief and practice they're actually rebelling against it. Now that seems a little bit frightening, doesn't it? You say, well, maybe that's even happening in our world today, but surely not. And so he's thinking of something in the future. There's a marked rejection of God's truth within the visible church. This is not a rebellion against the government by believers. This is not the rebellion against be- of believers against other religious forms. This is a rebellion within the church. It's a rebellion of the visible church, people who are called the people of God. And and just to back it up, I'll give you people who are smarter than me what they say about it in commentary on the scripture. Anthony Hoikama says the apostasy will occur within the ranks of the members of the visible church. G.K. Bill, a lot smarter than I am, he says the point Paul appears to be making is that the visible church community within which true saints exist will become so apostate that it will be dominantly filled with people who profess to be Christian, but really are not. The church will continue to profess to be Christian, but most, most in it will actually not be true believers. Now see, what, what my fear is, here's, here's, here's my fear. My fear is not that persecution is coming to America, my fear is that the Christian church becomes such a false church that the church itself seems to be flourishing and growing, but the people within the church are not actually truly following Christ, they're following now lies. And that's a greater deception. That is worse. It's, it's not that which is outside of the church that is the greatest threat to the people of God, it's that which is inside the church that is the greatest threat to the people of God. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying the greatest threat is not somebody to come in and persecute us, Your The greatest threat is not Joe Biden or a president to come that's going to bring persecution. The greatest threat to the Christian church is that you would become so diluted in your faith that you accept the values of the world but yet still label yourself a Christian. That's spooky. And so he's saying this is something you have to pay attention to in the end times because it becomes more and more prominent. One of my favorite books in the Bible, one of the reasons is because you can read it in about a half a minute, and that's the book of Jude. And he's a tough little bird, Jude is. It's Jesus' little brother, but I just want to read two verses from it. In Jude chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I, just, I wanted to write something that would encourage you all in your salvation because it's what every preacher wants to do. Every Sunday I would love to preach something mega encouraging and just have you like ready to do this you know, on your way out. And, and, but he said, but when I look at what's going on, When I look at what's going on, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you something. If we let go of the Word of God, which direction is it going to fall? Which, which way, is it going to go north or is it going to go south? It's going to drop, isn't it? If when we begin to let go of the word of God, if, if I stop eating healthy and I stop exercising, what, where does my health go? Does it decline or does it get better? If I don't talk to my wife much and we don't really deal with our relationship and try to make it better and try to make our home better, which direction does it go? Does it go south or does it go? It goes south. Anything that you are not fighting for and working for in this corrupt world will eventually go south. And he's saying, you can't just hold the faith lightly. It's going to be something, especially in the latter times, that you actually have to begin to contend for. Because it's going to be resisted, and this world system is going to try to pry it out of our hands. And he's saying, no, we have got to contend. The the theme of Jude is contending, and it's a military athletic term. Nobody, you know, we got people who coach sports in here, nobody goes in and tells their team and says, you know what, boys, just sort of treat it lightly. Just sort of go in let what happens happen. No, no, no. They tell them, get in there and fight, son, and dig and hustle and get after it. Whoever works the hardest is going to win this game. Amen. They're telling them to contend and to do battle, and it's the same way in this Christian life. But he says what's interesting is the conflict is ultimately between two groups. And get this, I want you to hear this. Our conflict is not so much with the political system of America or the politicians that are running for office, even though I think we should contend in those areas. I think it's time for the Christian church to contend in all areas of society. If there are things that are opposed to God's word, we're going to stand up. And and here's what I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm not saying that we need to be aggravating. I'm saying we need to contend. I'm not saying that we need to be annoying. I'm saying that we need to contend. What that means is you can try to get me to believe what you want me to believe. You can try to get me to not speak about things that are not politically correct, but I'm still going to speak about them in love, and I'm still going to live my life based on the truth of God's word, and I'm going to let people know about that. I'm not going to confront, I'm not going to cease confronting issues that people find uncomfortable because it's not politically correct. Amen. And this is important. He says you've got to contend for it. But the conflict is not between us and somebody outside. He says the conflict is actually between the real Christians and the fake Christians within. Somebody say, you called somebody a fake Christian this morning, Clay? It's one of them kind of Sundays, ain't it? So he actually lists, if you read through this, what what Jude just said, there are four signs of a real Christian, and I want to give them very quickly based on what he said. The four signs of a real Christian based on what Jude says is number one, they have their identity in God. That's so important. Jude calls you beloved four times. He says that you are the one that is loved by God. And the greatest footing of your identity is the fact that you don't work for God's love, you can't earn God's love, he has chosen you and you are the object of God's love. He doesn't deal with you according to your past. He doesn't bring up your sin and say, well, you're a piece of trash. You ought to be a same. He says, no, you are my beloved. You've been washed in my blood. You've been set free. You've been re- forgiven. You have been redeemed. You've been made clean. And I've given you my spirit and it's sealed it until the day of redemption and said, you are mine emphatically. I love you and I'll never stop loving you no matter what happens in this world. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. See, our identity is in that and our identity is not in our. Sexuality, it's not in our gender, it's not in our political party, it's not in the ideologies that we adopt, it's not in any of those things. Our identity is in God, and you know the difference between a real and a fake Christian because we start a fake Christian uses things that may describe them and makes it their identity. And I'm telling you, no, that's not our identity. Our identity is in God alone. Number two, they're saved like everyone else. He says, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation because there's a common salvation. Now, this is something that's very interesting. I don't know about you, but pretty much every Christian has the same story. They have, they have a story. Some, some people say, well, I don't have a testimony. And what they mean is I didn't do heroin when I was young. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm sad. I don't have a testimony. I didn't shoot heroin when I was young. Well, guess what? You don't have... <laughs> I know, I'm awful. The point is, though, it's this every Christian that I know, you know what they say? You know what? I got to a point where I was convicted of my sin. I realized I was a sinner. The Holy Spirit was dealing with my heart, drawing me to a place of repentance. And finally, I came to Jesus and I cried out to Jesus. And He saved my soul and He filled me with His Spirit and He changed my behavior. I used to be this way and I'm not that way anymore. Jesus has saved me. It's a common salvation. It's a common salvation, and what that means is, is that when you start to talk to people and say, you know what, I just I, I remember whenever I first got saved, I went to some of my buddies. And, and here's the thing, we were, all, we were all cussing, we were all sleeping with women, we were all drinking, we were all doing drugs, we are all hateful, we were all wanted to fight every now and then, and that's how we were. And I went to them, and I got saved, and Jesus changed my heart, and I said, boys, i got to tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. And you know what they responded to me? Well, Clay, we're saved. My response was, what in the world from? What does he say? The point being is it's a common salvation and it requires repentance from sin. If Jesus Christ saves you, your life changes, friends. It does not stay the same. And what's happening is he's saying there are people that creep in unaware and they make this salvation something where basically you can continue in your same lifestyle without ever repenting and saying, I thank God for saving me. And you continue down the path of sin just as if nothing had ever happened. And now this salvation is more about God affirming you in what you used to be rather than transforming you into a new creation. And that's subtle. It works. It works. In people's lives, there are people who are up under that. Number three, they hold the core doctrine. It means it's a faith once delivered to the saints. I told you guys about a, I've been to a couple of different Christian concerts. You know what I'm saying? Y'all ever been to Christian concerts? It's wild out there, y'all. People, I remember I went to one, and this guy who is the leader of this group, uh, you know, he ends up saying that he believes that Jesus' resurrection was metaphorical. Famous Christian artist. He's not a Christian. If you'd believe that Jesus' resurrection is metaphorical, you're not a Christian. You don't pass the test. See, this is a literal, physical resurrection. It was one of the most important doctrines of the early church that you had to believe because it is essential to eternal life and it means that Christ is coming to restore and renew the earth. He's not raising us up metaphorically. He's raising us up literally and physically. And these are, he said, well, that's all clay, you're being rough and hard on people. No, this is what Jude is saying. He's saying things will creep in until it's so diluted that it's no longer Christianity. And even in today's world, he said this faith, faith was once delivered to the saints. It's a box lunch. It's not a salad bar. Yeah. Jesus made this and he packaged it and he said, this has been delivered to you. You don't get to make it up and you don't get to move into progressive Christianity where you say, I want the eggs, but I don't want the ranch dressing. You have to take every single thing that Jesus has delivered to you. You don't get to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. And you don't get to change it based on the direction that culture is currently going. I don't care if the entire world adopts these ideas that are perverse and against Scripture. I will still stand on Scripture when the world is on fire. Because it has changed my life. And because it has changed my life, I'm going to hold to the core doctrines and teachings of Jesus. And number four, they have to be willing, true Christians are willing to contend for their faith. And those are those who, they believe Jesus is everything. And it means that even if you put pressure on them, and even if you tell them they're going to lose their job, and even if you tell them they're going to be persecuted, they're going to stand and say, no, 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 we're going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I've told you about John who wrote the book of Revelation. He was on the Isle of Patmos. You know how he got there? The emperor boiled him in oil in order to make him recant his faith. And each time they dipped him in boiling oil, he came out and said, I do not recant, Jesus Christ is Lord. And finally, when they realized after they dipped him a third time, he would not recant his faith, they realized that he was unharmed. It scared them so badly that they shipped him out there to the Isle of Patmos and said, get out of our face. And many people in the Colosseum, written historically, that repented because of what they saw in front of them. Could we live in days like that again where people are so... Not going to deny Christ. Whether you torture us, beat us, whatever you do, we're not going to deny Christ. We're willing to suffer for our faith. But here's four signs of a fake Christian. And number one, what, what, what Jude says is he says they invade. They creep in unnoticed. <laughs> you know, I, here's the thing. I am not a guy. I don't like calling out, like, I'm not a dude who likes to take out a YouTube channel and try to find a heretic under every rock. You know what I'm saying? I'm not that guy. I would prefer to not ever bring up any names or call out anybody. But can I tell you that there are a lot of mainstream Christian preachers and teachers that are going down a very slippery slope in a direction far away from Scripture. And oftentimes, it's not so much what they do say, it's what they don't say. It's what they're leaving out. They're not declaring to you the full counsel of God. They're only giving you the feel-good stuff of Christianity. And they're leaving open doors for so many false things to come in and slowly dilute you until you. And it appeals to the lust of your flesh. It makes you feel better because it makes you comfortable. And it makes you be able to continue in sin and, 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 and sinful practice and still feel good about what's going on. But can I tell you, when God is in the room and when the Word of God is preached, holy conviction is a good thing. I thank God that when I have a bad thought or I'm tempted towards sin, the Holy Spirit says, no, Clay, absolutely not. And there's an urn on the inside of me that says don't go in that direction. I don't ever want to get to the point. Listen, I'm I'm human and fallible and flawed just as anybody else, but I pray every day, God, do not allow me by the power of the Spirit to slip into some kind of foolishness just because my flesh is tempted. Amen. And this is what we're asking God to do. So they invade, they creep in, and they slowly and subtly work people in a direction away from Christ and away from holiness. And the greatest threat to the church, as I said, is not those who are outside, but those who are inside, but against Christ. Number two, they're not saved. He says, long ago, these people were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. They come in, but ultimately, Jesus even said, they're wolves who have on sheep's clothing. They pose as a Christian, but they themselves are deceived, and therefore they come in with false ideas, false teachings. It appeals to their flesh and to what they desire sensually, and so they moved in, but ultimately they are not saved. Can I tell you? I need you all to hear this. Everybody, just because they say they're saved, get this. You ain't going to believe it. They ain't always saved. (laughs) Isn't that shocking? Isn't that shocking? Like just because they got a YouTube channel or just because they got a TikTok, and they know Greek words. You know, that doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean they're saved. He said, "You will know them by their fruits. You can know the word of God and see what they teach and understand what direction are they heading in. And then lastly, well, not lastly, but thirdly, he says, they preferred God's grace into sensuality. Now this is a very interesting one, because here's the thing. God is amazingly gracious. God came to me in my sin. And he saw me in the pit of utter destruction. And he reached down into that pit and with love drew me out of it and brought me into a place of of purity. And he set me free from things. Am I perfect? No, I still got struggles. But he broke so many chains off of my life. That's the grace of God. But he said what will happen is these people will come in and they'll pervert the grace of God and they'll turn it into a license for sensuality, a license for sexual immorality, a license for physical fleshly pleasure and he says basically God is so gracious he loves everyone all he wants you to do is let you know that right where you are at you are loved and no 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 the gospel has always been that God has overlooked many things in ages to come but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ the grace of God does not affirm and enable sexual immorality the grace of God calls you to repent and turn from sexual immorality then gives you the spirit of God which enables you to live above that sexual immorality you don't get to turn it into a license to live a sinful lifestyle but he said these teachers would come in and that's what they would do they would give you a license all you have to do is believe just believe and continue to live however you choose because God loves you that's wrong number four deny. they deny Jesus as Master and Lord see these are people who love Jesus as Savior but they deny Him as Lord I want Jesus to save me I want to go to heaven when I die Lord, have mercy, I sure do, but I don't want Jesus to call the shots of my life. Can I tell you that Jesus has offended me more than once, y'all? His word, I've come to it, and it has shot me right in the chest and said, you can't live this way. Well, why not? This is the way that I am. This is how I've always felt. But it was until I come to a place where I said, you know what, God? I'm going to agree with your word even if it hurts. And then all of a sudden there was an exchange And there was a power made available because you're willing to agree with what God's Word says and He becomes not just Savior, but He becomes Lord. He says they deny Him as Master and Lord. They don't deny Him as Savior. They deny Him as Master. They deny Him as Lord. Amen. I've spent a lot of time on that, so I need to move quickly. So if the church is a body, and it is, then apostasy and fake Christians are like a cancer, always trying to get in the body and corrupt and kill it. Can I say this to you? That the the world will love fake Christians in the end. The world does love fake Christians in the end. See, most of the world, especially in America, they don't want Christianity to cease. They want Christianity to be diluted. They want drag queens to be involved in Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? This is the way that our world is moving. They want our children to be sexualized in Christianity and us to stamp the label of Christian on it. And what we're saying is, no, 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 there's a distinction between this world system, but see, the opposite of contending is synchronizing and just saying we're going to continue to be Christians, but we're going to hold hands with the spirit of the age. And this is what's taking place in our world. You say, well, Clay, this isn't a very exciting message. I understand. But we're living in a world today where our universities are literally training our young people to have an Antichrist mindset. And you say, well, you're, ju- you're just over the top, man. Do you really believe that stuff? I absolutely believe that stuff. I went to college at EKU when I was 2000, in, in 2005. It's 2023. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but there have been a lot of changes since then. And when I went in 2005, almost every professor that I had was teaching me an ideology that was absolutely, absolutely counter to Christ and His commandments. They tried to push it on me. And I dabbled in other religions. I dabbled in atheism. I dabbled in different ideas. But see, that actually led me to such a point of hopelessness and despair that I turned to God in the middle of it. But I'm telling you, if it was that bad then, it is far worse now. They're trying to raise up a generation that thinks it's a demonic spirit that is behind our universities. And you can think I'm crazy if you want to, but it's just the reality. Either you believe the Word of God or you don't. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, but not before a great apostasy and a great rebellion and a great falling away from Christian principles takes place as a whole. Yeah. Amen. We can smile if you want to. Second Thessalonians 2, 3-8, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of, a wor- of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This man of lawlessness is an interchangeable term for antichrist. In First John, he said, listen guys, we know it's the last hour. And we know it's the last hour. Why? Because there are many antichrists that have went out into the world and there is an antichrist that is coming. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. There have been many Antichrists, many men of lawlessness, but he says as the time progresses, you're going to see an increase in that spirit working in our world and it will climax in a culmination at the end where this man of lawlessness, which has tried to crop up in other times, but God restrained and pulled back in and said, no, 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 it ain't the time yet. And he hindered Satan from fully manifesting, but he says at one time or another, there's going to be the least release and the man of lawlessness will be fully revealed and he says until that time comes jesus christ is not going to return and so you need to pay attention to what's going on so these two terms now here's something that's very interesting if you study about the antichrist y'all ready for this okay i mean i know i get it but if you study about the antichrist you you, you look in the book of revelation you look in second thessalonians here you're looking in first john and you even go back to the book of daniel and a lot of scholars, if you read, they talk about this particular man, this very particular man in the book of Daniel, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And I got a little picture of a bust of him, and that just looks spooky because his nose is missing, so I wanted to show it to you. <laughs> and this man lived at about 170 years uh, B.C., and he was a Greek emperor, so to speak, okay? He was a Greek emperor, and he, he, he had a lot of power and what? scripture says and what most scholars will teach is that in Daniel 7 through 10 they believe a lot of the prophecies in Daniel 7 through 10 are actually specifically about this particular man Antiochus Epiphanes who becomes a type and a figure of an antichrist spirit that will happen throughout the ages but then also will culminate in one final man of lawlessness just like him exactly like him that's what most scholars would say so like in Daniel seven twenty-five, I don't have time to break it down really. Uh, really deeply but i want to just at least kind of go over it so it says he shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time times and half a time now that's the same language that john uses in the book of revelation concerning the beast which is very interesting These are symbols that he knew about, but also a very specific thing because time's time and a half a time is three and a half years. You know how long uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes reigned? 1260 days, three and a half years he persecuted the Jewish people. and, and, And they knew about that, and Daniel prophesied about it, and it was a type of what was ultimately also to come at the end. So for three and a half years, Antiochus Epiphanes was given a long leash to harass the people of God, and all of a sudden one day he got sick and died, and it was over. Just like that. But listen, Antiochus called himself Epiphanes, get this, because Epiphanes means God manifest. Now we just read how the man of lawlessness, what does he do? He goes into the temple and he proclaims himself to be God and exalts himself above every object of worship. Isn't that what he does? That's what we just read. You know what Antiochus Epiphanes did? He came in. And he went into the temple in Jerusalem after making Jewish decrees forbidding religious practices. So he changed their laws as as it said that he would. He sacrificed a pig on the altar because it was an abomination for them to have a pig anywhere near that. And and so he sacrifices a pig on the altar. He makes the blood shed out on their sacrificial system. He made the priests eat swine's flesh, okay? Okay. He proclaimed himself to be God manifest in the temple. He put the lamp out in the temple, and in 168 B.C., in just a a, a short span, he killed 80,000 Jews. And they said this was a type, a prefigure of this man of lawlessness. This is a spirit of Antichrist that was at work. And this is what Daniel initially referred to as the abomination of desolation. And so when Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, this is what he's referring to. He said, when you see that abomination of desolation, when they saw him stand in the temple, sacrifice the pig blood and proclaim himself to be God, they fled. They went into the hills. Now, when Jesus shows up, he prophesies about something very, very similar, but he's pulling from this understanding in Daniel, and this is why he says this. He says in Matthew 24, 15 and 16, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, he's referring back to something that happened in history. Then he says, let the reader understand. In other words, you all all know about this. You know what I'm talking about. You know what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He says, not only did it happen, but it's going to happen now and it will happen again. He's setting up a type for what will happen throughout the age, the church age. And this is really what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is not just about a seven year period in the end. It's about intensifying things that happen throughout the entirety of the church age. And ultimately will culminate in the end. And so when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And do you know what happened? Titus, who was a Roman emperor in A.D. 70, they considered themselves, guess what, to be gods. They were deified. He comes in, he destroys the temple. You know what all of them did? They fled to the mountains because in 70 A.D. Jerusalem was destroyed. But here's, here's the thing about it. What most scholars will say is that, okay, it happened in 168 B.C., it happened in 70 A.D., but it's going to happen again in some fashion in the very end, the man of lawlessness. Not just Antiochus Epiphanes, not just Titus, not just Adolf Hitler, but the culmination of all of those men and the spirit that were, were, were behind them will come to a climax in the end, and you will see something very similar. But here's where it gets a little bit hairy, because it says specifically, right, he exalts himself, 2 Thessalonians 2:4 against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, here's where a lot of people, Bible scholars and stuff like that, they'll say, well, what's it going to be? They they would say throughout history, how's he going to put himself in the temple? There is no temple. It's been destroyed. How's he going to put himself in the temple? Now, a lot of people will say there's two views. Number one, it's that when they talk about the temple of God, they're talking about the church. Herman Ritterbo, cool name, said... Basically what he's saying, to set in the temple is a divine attribute, the arrogating to oneself of divine honor. F.F. Bruce says it's a graphic way of saying that he plans to usurp the authority of God. But here's what some people would say, that the phrase temple of God is used ten times in the New Testament, and nine out of ten times it's not referring to a temple in Jerusalem, a physical temple. It's referring to the Christian church. So this view says this, like, Sam Storm says, The way this language is used elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul himself, makes it unlikely that it could refer to anything other than the church, the body of Christ, the only temple in which God is ever pleased to dwell again. So what he's saying is, now what he's going to do is he's going to exalt himself within the church, and just when he has his foot on the neck of the church, he's going to cause them to to acknowledge the fact that he is God, that he is God. In the flesh. He exalts himself in the temple. Now the other view, and most people I think in America view, have this view, even though most biblical scholars don't, but most people in America have this view, and that's that the temple is the rebuilt t- temple in Jerusalem. And i got to be honest with you. This makes a lot more sense if you look at Islam and what's going on right now in the world. You see Islamic nations rising up, and they all believe what? They believe we should wage jihad on on Israel and on the world, and if we bathe the world in infidel's blood, then the the rise of the Mahdi will show up. The Mahdi is essentially their Messiah. They believe that in the end, and I told you, the the, the Islamic belief is that in the end, if they bathe the world in infidel blood, that the Mahdi will rise up. is the twelfth imam they believe that he was hidden back in 900 and something bc and he's going to be, be revealed in the last time and when he is revealed there's something that's so interesting about this because there's similarities of their messiah and our antichrist interesting right let me give you a few examples both are portrayed as an end times political military and religious leader both men subdue the earth by a powerful army and establish a new world order Both are portrayed as establishing new laws for the earth, and in the case of Islam, it would be Sharia law. Both figures institute a world religion. Both are portrayed as executing those who don't submit. Both seek to kill the Jewish people, and both seize and conquer Jerusalem. And so, what's interesting, in the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad... I'm quoting the Hadith, which is, you know, part of the Quran, The sayings of Muhammad, who it's known that he got most of his end times theology from learning it from Christians and Jews and then twisting it. But he says this, he says, The last hour won't come before the Muslims would fight the Jews, and the Muslims will kill them. So Jews would hide behind rocks and trees. Then the rocks and tree would call, O Muslim, O servant of God, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. that's a little bit bleak, isn't it? But what we're saying is, whether it's in the church, or whether it's Islam coming in, whether it's a man that comes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God in the rebuilt temple, that's not the point. The point is, we can't know for sure what these things are. But we do know that we need to be alert and be on the watch of what it could possibly be within and without We watch world affairs, but we also watch what's taking place in our own heart and within the church as well because he says these things are culminating to an end. You're going to see a great rebellion and it's going to set the stage where the entire world will ultimately back this man and come into agreement with what he is saying. And you cannot come into agreement with the spirit of Antichrist and the mystery of lawlessness that is at work. And I know some of you say, man, I'm overwhelmed with what you're talking about this morning. This is more, I I don't know if I can handle this. It's so important that the church doesn't just come and hear a sermon on Sundays, but we begin to understand what Scripture is saying concerning these things. So many people will say, you know, I just can't believe that you would preach about these things. And some of the time I want to say, well, most preachers don't preach about that, or most preachers don't preach about that. People will say that. And what I want to say is, have you read the New Testament, my friend? This is all throughout it. There are warnings. It's it's trying to wake us up to the reality of the evil that is in our world and the spirit that is at work behind it. So Paul says there's going to be a guy in the culmination of the time of the end that is like Antiochus Epiphanes and others, and he will be lawless, and there's going to be a rebellion that sets up his exaltation. And this mystery of, of lawlessness is already at work. It's working within the church right now. G.K. Beale says again, he says, Paul sees that though this fiend has not yet come so visibly as he will at the final end of history, he is nevertheless already at work in the covenant community through his deceivers, the false teachers. Now, the Bible says that God restra- something is restraining him from being revealed. Some people will say, well, no, it's the church that is restraining him. And, and, it, and here's what I will say, ultimately, it's God that's restraining him you got different interpretations. If it's the church that is restraining Him, it's because because the Holy Spirit is within the church and we stand up against the lawlessness of this Spirit that is coming at the age. And we speak truth and we live truth and we say no, we resist that and we push back against it and we continue to proclaim the gospel. The greatest way that you can resist the mystery of lawlessness is by winning hearts to Christ. Turning people away from this world system and to fall in love with this Jesus Christ who loves them passionately. Others say, well, it's Michael the archangel, because in rabbinic literature, we know that in Daniel, Michael restrains. There's a a battle between angels and demonic principalities. And and in rabbinic literature, it says that Michael is said to pass away or be taken out of the way when when the Antichrist pitches his tents in Judea just before the tribulation begins. The point is, ultimately, God is restraining him until the right time comes. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I've never even seen a movie where somebody killed somebody with their breath. You know what I'm talking about? I know sometimes when I pray for people that are, I've been preaching for a while, I almost kill them with my breath. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to open up his mouth, and it's, not, it's the sword of his word. You talk about somebody that's so powerful, more powerful than Thanos. Y'all know what I'm talking about? This guy shows up, and he opens his mouth, and with the word of his mouth, it's like a sharp two-edged sword, and it brings all things to naught. He destroys this beast. It's no match. This is, it's like we said before. You know, in the end, what it takes to bind Satan? One angel. It takes one angel to bind Satan. He's not at war with God. He's at war with humanity. He's at war with the angels. God will smush him in an instant. When Christ returns, there will be no battle. There will be no war. He will open his mouth and it will come to an end. And we are on the winning side. And this is the hope that we have. So I don't know how it all plays out. I don't know what it looks like. I can only really make some observations and, and, and sort of guess around. But I don't believe that Jesus is coming back for a weak bride. I don't believe, I believe there's a remnant, I believe there's a people of God. When I look at this church, you know, I've heard preachers say, we were joking the other day, somebody said, you know, that's half the church, that means half of y'all ain't saved, or this or that. I don't look out at this church and think to myself, man, half of these people ain't saved. When I look at you all, I see a group of people who say, you know what, we know who we are, and maybe we've slipped here or there, maybe we've failed, but we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, we know our God, and we're going to seek Him in this last hour, and we're going to allow God to use us for the glory of His name. And if he needs to clean some stuff up in me, we're going to allow him to do that because we're not going to walk with the deception of this world, but we are going to live for Jesus and we're going to be ready when he splits that eastern sky. Amen. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now I don't know if you feel the same way that I do. I remember growing up as a kid And I'm just 36, you all. Things have changed radically in the last 10 years. Would you agree? And if you look at the things that are accepted and promoted in our world, America, if you look historically, I mean, America's not always been great. There's been evil in America throughout its entirety. But at the same time, America was once a place of Christian values. It was once a place that believed in Christian values. And today, it's just becoming a place that doesn't really believe in those values at all. And I am amazed... When this says in the scripture, for example, that he comes with all unrighteous deception and because people rejected the love of the truth that they might be saved, God brings in them strong delusion. See, what delusion is, I actually have a definition for delusion. It's a fixed false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. A fixed false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. And I think about some of the things. I've read different things even this week, but I remember just this past year. you had We're living in a time where, like in California, for example. In California, for example, the governor said, Listen, if you've got a kid that comes in seven years old or older or whatever, and they're fleeing from their parents, we will grant them emergency custody. The state will get emergency custody so that they can have a sex transition. I don't, know, I don't know if you're amazed by that. Do you know that you can't, you can't actually transition your gender? It's not possible. And to believe that you can't, I get, I get, Clay, this is not politically correct. Why are you touching these things? Because it's the foundation of the truth of God. Yeah. When in the beginning we believe God created clearly, nature proves it, male and female, and all of a sudden you see that being undermined. I get, I get that people need to be treated with compassion, and people need to be loved, and they need the gospel. People are coming out of that mindset though. But they cannot come out if nobody speaks the truth. And they cannot come out if nobody loves them with that truth. And so the point is is we're not here to hate people or say you're wrong or you're evil or this. We're here to proclaim the gospel and say this is the truth. You have an opportunity to turn to Jesus but you are under not only deception but what is becoming delusion because when you think it's a good idea to to allow a seven-year-old to change their sex when their prefrontal cortex is not... This is why we don't let people smoke until they're 18 they can't make good decisions and you think it's a good idea to do that that is called delusion and what we see coming upon our world is because people continue to reject god and continue to reject god and continue to reject god under that deception now we have entered into strong delusion. And it's important to understand that. And you say, well, I just don't know if I understand that, Clay. This is why you need to pay attention, because you need to see if this lawlessness is at work in your own heart. He's called the man of lawlessness for a reason. Bible says in the last days, Jesus said that because lawlessness would abound, the love of many would grow cold. You're going to see people, like even right now, there's just riots and hate and... People rising against one another and betraying one another. In the church, the one thing that we have got to be when the world is chaotic and hating one another, we've got to love one another. And see, when I talk about Muslims or I talk about people that are dealing with the transgender issue, I'm not talking about having hate for them. I'm talking about speaking the truth boldly in love because I believe Jesus loves them and wants to save them. I believe that with all of my heart. But if we capitulate and we bow down to the ideologies of our age and just cease from speaking the truth, then they have no opportunity to to come to the truth and to be saved and to know Jesus Christ. And I know that's difficult. I know it's hard. It's not easy. I I do not want to get up and speak messages like this. It's never our desire. But God has to give us a boldness in this hour to be able to stand for truth and not be swayed under the pressure of this world. I could go on and on, but C.S. Lewis said this man of lawlessness, he talked about until the 1940s, he wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. And he said, all of human history until the 1940s, all humanity believed that law was something outside of themselves. That in the 1930s and the 1940s, if you had said, hey, this little girl thinks she's a boy, we should allow her to transition and, and be that. He said, well, you had your brain slapped out. That it just said you're crazy. That's foolishness. What are you talking about? There are laws in place that we know, natural laws that we know this is not right. But he said in the 1940s, something changed, and people begin to say that law is not something outside of ourselves. Law is something that we can determine within We can decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, and we can become a law unto ourselves, and that is ultimately the deception and the lie of Satan from the beginning. You can be God. You can be autonomous. You can decide for yourself what is law, what is right, what is wrong, but I'm here to tell you today there is one lawgiver, and his name is God Almighty, and he has established these laws forever, and so when we see this man of lawlessness rising up, he is the one that declares to all of humanity you are your own God you decide for yourself but I'm telling you that spirit is already speaking that to our children every single day that they live and it's not bringing them freedom it's bringing them into deeper bondage and this is why we need to understand that in the church at large you're going to notice that it's going to continue to capitulate because their greatest need is not to serve Jesus their greatest need is to be loved by the world They feel like they're out there doing PR for Jesus, making Jesus look good. I can't make Jesus look any better than he already is. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. He is what he is, and he's called us to speak his word. And so if you're going to live in these last days, you need to have some non-negotiables. You know, my baby, I tell you all every day, I'm becoming more like her. We was out in an amusement park the other day, and some turkey fell on the ground, and I just picked it up and ate it, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm, just becoming, I'm just becoming more and more like Naomi every day. I just do what she does. You know what I'm saying? There's a puddle, I just waller her in it. But I've told you before, what I notice about the church is they're becoming a lot like Naomi. They'll put anything in their mouth. And that's how you get sick. And I'm saying you have to have some non-negotiables in your life. And one, I don't have a lot of time to spend on them. But let me give you one non-negotiable. Jesus is Lord. And if He is Lord, then His Word is true and everything else is a lie. And I'm going to live on His Word. Jesus is Lord. His Word is true. If I love Jesus, I must keep His commandments. This is where it stands for us in these last days. Now, we are called in this hour to know God's Word, to be filled with God's Spirit, to be a demonstration of God's power, to proclaim god's gospel and to stand on god's truth without compromise this is what the church is called to do in this hour and so i want you to take a moment you bow your heads with me just consider what the holy spirit is speaking to you because you are god's beloved And this, as strong of a word as this may feel like it is, it is a word of great and deep love. And and when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, he was writing to them out of love because he was saying, you know what? I know that the world seems to be chaotic and confusing around you. But now's the time to lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. Pay attention. Work. Be filled with the Spirit. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Keep your eyes focused on the mission. God is calling you in this hour to be a strong light and to be aware of the times that we are living in. And so, Lord, we just pray this morning for each and every person that, Holy Spirit, you would work in their hearts. And, God, you would purify your church, that you would give us a discernment to know the truth in this hour and that we would be filled with your power to be a bold witness in this time. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And amen. Amen.